Our memory passage this week, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, thinking of those who have come before, those who have endured the faith, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. There's a race that's set before us that we don't choose. It is not our decision about the world that we're born into. It is not our decision about how the world thinks about life or what we face. But may we, like those who surround us, endure and run this race faithfully. And it's to that end that we want to labor here tonight. Let me prepare you. I tried to a little bit here. Some of you are going to absolutely love this tonight, and some of you are going to really struggle probably. I hope no one is. I wish I was a good enough teacher to inspire everyone about these types of things. But particularly tonight, uh, well, we're dealing with two areas that are troublesome to some. The first is philosophy, and the next is history. (laughs) So tonight is philosophy, and next uh, Lord's Night, hopefully, as, as the Lord wills, will be his, more history. But as we think about the world in which we live, we, we've, we need to think through why we are where we are. It, unbelievers don't need to worry about this. They just are. They're just there. They don't, why they're there, why they're thinking the way that they're thinking, few of them really worry about it. I just, I'm just where I'm at. But our task is very different. First of all, we have to understand how we are influenced by the world around us. And not, as, as we've talked in 1 Corinthians, not bringing that into the culture of the church. But the second thing is we also want to win those who know not Christ. And if we would find ourselves in Cambodia, speaking to people there, and think that we can talk to them precisely like we talk to the neighbor across the street, we're, we're fooling ourselves. They're coming out of a very different culture and perspective, and we need on some level to understand that. Vice versa. Uh, as we talk to our neighbors, as we talk to workmates and unsafe family members, we need to understand how we are, where we are as a culture. Now, I'm not saying that means you have to start with this before you proclaim the gospel to an unbeliever. But I'm saying it will be very helpful to understand who you're talking to. Uh, You're going to have to find out personally. They may not personally be where our culture is. But as we're talking to people, to have a basic sense of how our culture is thinking and why it's thinking the way that it's thinking is important to evangelism. So to that end, we're going to labor, dig in deeply, and uh, strive to uh, unpack some of these ideas Let me just pray briefly. Father, um, as we talk about these things, we do not study Scripture here tonight as such, but rather by way of application to think through how we can best stand for truth. That we would lay aside the sin that clings so closely, that we would run with endurance a race that is set before us. Teach us to this end, I pray, and bless um, this discussion this evening May it equip us and help us to better serve you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Our title here, The Modern Self, Identity, Politics, Union with Christ, is all part of trying to understand our strange new world. I had the title on this of Understanding Our Strange New World, and I thought, you know, I think trying to is probably, I should add that in there. 
Uh, it, it, is a, it is a confusing world sometimes, but as we think through our union with Christ, when we trust Christ as Savior, when we are baptized by the Holy Spirit, when the Spirit sanctifies and regenerates us, at that point, we are no longer under the headship of Adam, but we are under the headship of Christ. That's a radical shifting of everything in our lives. Everything gets reoriented at that moment. To be in Christ is all important to us. However, it also places us at fundamental odds with the culture in which we live. The prevailing view of self-identity, we can use the phrase sometimes, how we do identity in this culture, directly conflicts with the doctrine of our union with Christ as believers. And talk to every missionary in the world, I would bet my bottom dollar, as they say, that every one of them will say that the world in which they live is in conflict over that issue of how we do identity. Our identity in Christ is unique. And everywhere that we go, every culture and subculture that we are in will place us at odds on that level. Self-identity and the attendant playground of identity politics in our world constitutes an assault on biblical, the biblical view of identity. So, on the theory side, I'd like us to consider some of the historical roots, the philosophical roots that have led to our culture's very radicalized view of self, and then the identity politics that get wound up in that. If that sounds a bit heady, a bit philosophical, uh, it will help us better understand how we've gotten where we are, as I've mentioned, and how to win a world to Christ. But if that sounds still so theoretical, it helps us more practically how on earth people deem it noble to put litter boxes in public school buses for students who believe they're cats. How, how is it possible that we've gotten there? It will help us understand the rise of identity politics which spawn laws and policies to provide freedoms for individuals based on whatever they wish to believe about themselves. We did not get to this place quickly, or by accident, and discerning how the West has reached this place will better equip us as apologists for the cause of Christ. And in, in, the, in this discussion, I want to make very clear up front that I'm drawing very heavily from others. Everything that's here, unless it's uh, stated a page number and an author, is, is the way I've put it in my own words to try to help uh, describe it for us, but I'm certainly leaning on others uh, in these areas. And uh, one source is Carl Truman in the book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. This is a, not an easy book to read, uh, probably a bit over 400 pages, and it's, 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 uh, it's a hard slog. But I've been able to work my way through that. If you, want, if you want something that's a summation of it, about half the length, there has just come out a, the same book with just a lot of the stuff, the unnecessary stuff pulled out of it. So I kind of wish that second one had come out sooner, but <laughs> I, I was just about done the first one, when I think, when I saw it. But at any rate, um, though, that work that he has done is, is really, a, I think, a gift to us as a church. And I'm adding with this uh, Brian Rossner, 
by the way, was the, uh, one of the mentors of Brian Blazowski in his PhD work. But uh, he's an Australian. He's written the book, How to Find Yourself and Why Looking Within is Not the Answer. I'm drawing from this book as well, as well as other sources, but pretty heavily, uh, most heavily on Truman and secondarily on Rosner here. And if you wanted to find what I'm talking about, you'll just find it in their words in those two books. So let's start, first of all, with our cultural environment of expressive individualism. We, we need to set the conversation here, and it, and it really affects us uh, from the very early days of our nation. We hold these truths, says um, the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. They are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And in that context, there is reference to the laws of nature and nature's God. That phrase is, is really significant, not merely for religious reasons, but for the way that we understand self and identity and how we put our world together. That concept of nature has been pen-knifed out of our social consciousness as a, na- as a nation. Uh, not merely God, but this idea of nature and what it teaches. This endowment then is, it's, all of this that we've received is hardwired, as we see here, to our Creator and to nature's God. To nature, nature's God. So the, the America that we inhabit today has severed this connection. And one result is that our society's perception of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness has undergone a radical reinterpretation with seismic consequences. Happiness, and here's where it's at, happiness in 1776 was tethered to what God provided amidst an integrated society. So we thought of ourselves as a collective that God blesses and works in the midst of. Today's definition of happiness and its pursuit is rooted entirely in what the individual wants. It's no longer a a collective concept, but is now me and how am I made to be happy. Let's illustrate that, three illustrations that will help us just uh, connect here to to this point. But in Obergefell and Hodges, the Supreme Court defied the only legitimate definition of marriage by applying the concept to homosexuals. The opinion of the court was argued in part along these lines. It's really not very difficult. The the reasoning of this decision is pretty straightforward. Marriage brings people happiness. All people have a right to happiness... Therefore, homosexuals have a right to marriage. That's the simple thinking of it. Marriage makes you happy. All people should be happy. Homosexuals should therefore be able to marry. The definition of happiness on which this decision hinges is thoroughly psychologized and it is thoroughly sexualized. It is a psychologized, sexualized understanding of self, and it indicates the significant shift that we are observing. Illustration number two, 
There is in Pennsylvania a group known as the Abortion Liberation Fund, working under that title, the Abortion Liberation Fund of Pennsylvania. It funds women's liberty to abort their unborn children. It takes a certain view of self to couch murder as liberation. You have to think about the self in a certain way to do the gymnastics to get there. But it's a definition that's widely held today. It is liberating to end this life. Liberating to whom? Liberating to the self. We don't even really ask the question now about how it affects the society. Is the individual pleased? Then this is something that we must promote. Number three, I am a woman trapped in a man's body. That phrase, again, hinges on the view of self that has arisen and triumphed. Imagine traveling back in time. You're in downtown Minneapolis. It's 1958. You're you. You've just gone back in time. And you come across a couple walking down the sidewalk They ask you directions to something, and you're assigned with this question. Could you please comment on this statement that I'm about to make? I believe that I am a woman trapped in a man's body, or vice versa. How's that, what's that couple, how are they going to respond? They might laugh, they might run away in the moment, Uh, they they, may be extremely confused. They would not even know what you were talking about. But this same statement has come to make sense in our world. You can talk to people out there, and a large number of them would say that makes sense. Maybe all of them would say it makes sense from the perspective of our day, whether they agreed or not. Anyone today, in fact, who would oppose such a perception is likely to be ridiculed as ignorant, if not condemned as hateful, by at least a good percentage in our society. And why is that? In part because denying the legitimacy of such a claim is seen as an opposition to a person's personal happiness. If your pursuit of personal happiness means that you want to be something other than you clearly are, We want to step back and permit that freedom as the self rules. Self is permitted to rule. Well, Truman insists that um, it is a mistake, a mistake that has been made, a mistake that we need to stop making, to think of these three illustrations, homosexual quote-unquote marriage, abortion on demand, and transgenderism, as mere entailments of the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s. We can easily see it that way. Like This is the slippery slope we're on, and everything just keeps devolving since that terrible 60s and 70s era. But he would push back and say the mistake such Christians make was failing to realize that broader underlying social and cultural conditions made both gay marriage and then transgender ideology first plausible and then normative, and here's the thing that might stun some of us, and these conditions have been developing over hundreds of years. First of all, that piques my interest, what, hundreds of years? Secondly, that's really discouraging, (laughs) 
because if it's taken that long to get here, it's not going away. I mean, this isn't a trend that we've run into that's just going to disappear. This has been taking place for hundreds of years. Next week will be more where we focus on that side of things. But let me pause here, take a quick rabbit trail, and say, what are we talking about when we talk about self? By self, we do not merely mean self-awareness or self-consciousness. We all have that and, and, and thankful for it. But more something other than that. It's the psychologized self. So self involves, in the sense that we're talking about here tonight, my sense of why I'm alive. That's my, as I define self, it's how, why am I alive? Why am I here? And secondly, what is my purpose in life? Uh, my perception of what makes life good and whole for me. My sensitivity to my feelings and intuitions. And by this I mean by sensitivity, I mean like I'm aware of it. I'm really open to it. I'm, I'm tagging into what are my feelings and my intuitions. We, we hear this counsel often. Go with your gut. Right? Just like, what do you feel? Like, get in touch with that inner feeling and intuition and then my perception and relationship uh, my self-perception in relation to other selves charles taylor that uh, truman is parroting here has said one is a self only among other selves that's that's a that phrase is helpful one is a self only among other selves uh, that is to say that no matter how hard we may try, our self-identity is always going to be calibra calibrated in context of other people. This is why people assert self and say, you need to recognize me. You need to applaud what I'm saying, what I'm doing. You need to get on with me because we cannot, we don't just, we're not free-floating spirits but self is always seen among other selves. This is why uh, we have the support of identity politics that we find today, how, how important it is that the politicians come together and that laws and rules and regulations are made so that we acknowledge what a self has decided. In our culture today, this modern sense of self is fleshed out in the convictions of expressive individualism. Now, I'll loop in several authors here, and I'm mixing and matching and putting it all together just in my own words, but as we think of expressive individualism, uh, how do we understand that? Let's look, first of all, just at the general concept of expressive individualism. Let me help you along here. you got to get this. This is really important. Now, you may not be able to remember expressive individualism, or spell it even, but it, it, just to say, you've you got to know that this is our background. This is the world we're in. And when I put these points up, you'll go, oh yeah, it is the world we're in. What do you know? Uh, but Rosner says, you are who you feel yourself to be on the inside. And acting in accordance with this identity constitutes living authentically. Another expression of it, each person has an inner core defined by feelings and intuitions that need to find outward expression in order for the individual to be authentic. Taken hundreds of years to get to this place, but this is the conviction of our, of our day. 
Now, just uh, picking from a narrower, more practical angle, David Wells helpfully describes expressive individualism this way. He said, It is driven by a deep sense of entitlement to being left alone, to live in a way that is emancipated from the demands and expectations of others, to being able to fashion its own life in the way it wants to, to being able to develop its own values and beliefs in its own way to resist all authority. To be free in these ways, many have come to think is indispensable to being a true individual. Does that make sense to you? Do you see those people in your life? Do we realize that that just rings true to how a lot of people view life around us? Take that statement to other parts of the world. It doesn't fit at all. That is not how they think. But it's how we think here. And so there's a, there's a uniqueness to this perspective. Let me just illustrate with where this touches our lives. Does that ring true to how people think today, unbelievers? Now think of people coming to faith in Christ within the context of a church where they're bringing with them philosophies they don't even know they're bringing with them. Put that together with church discipline. Ooh. there, There has to be a training in Scripture from outside the culture because I have this fundamental right to be left alone. You mind your business, I'll mind mine. Isn't going to work well at all with a context in which a church holds one another accountable in church discipline. We see some of the the, um, pending war that is here. Well, let's talk then about the constituent parts of expressive individualism, and I don't think this is probably by any means exhaustive, but let's just pick at some of the pieces of it with that broader sense in view. First of all, I have a fundamental responsibility to look inside myself for answers to my life's challenges and purposes. Like I'm I'm supposed to do that. Number two, I must own that the most important goal of my life is my happiness. Not a whole person if I've not come to perceive that. Thirdly, the moral judgments of authority figures express only their personal feelings and preferences, so may be rejected in deference to the dictates of my authentic self. There are people who say, I'm in a position of authority and this is the reality, such as parents. But that's not my authentic self. And so I I need to go a different way. And what we have now in parenting theory is, oh, okay, I must decrease any sense of authority and get in line with what a child wants, because what that child wants is all important. And we go on and on with that. But the individ- uh, number four here, individual liberty is the primary pathway to an improved world, and I should push to the front of the line. We should be pursuing individual liberty wherever we can find it. And anybody that curtails our liberty is someone who's in the way of me becoming everything that I want to be, which is someone who's in the way of my happiness. And that's evil. So there's a lot of despising of authority in this in expressive individuals. 
Number five, an individual's authentic self-expression should be lauded by the community as long as it does not directly conflict with the authentic self-expression of others. And just look at news feeds. This conflicts everywhere. They can never figure out exactly how to do that. But we, we've got we've to say that um, as long as it doesn't conflict with someone else, then we should rejoice and laud uh, authentic self-expression, whatever that is. And we can see then why a child that says, I'm a cat, we need to pack off, or a boy that says, I'm a girl, a girl that says, I'm a boy, we need to applaud this. We need to rejoice. This is an individual who's being a true, authentic individual. And we are not in a position with any authority to crush that spirit. Expressive individualism. If you have a question, we've got to be really cautious with this, but don't, don't be afraid. But if you've got a question that says, I need this for clarity, this doesn't make sense, or can you explain this? Any, anyone that way, go ahead, feel free. Take a commercial break here. But uh, is it ringing true? Are you saying that it makes sense? Anything that doesn't make sense? Yes? That's not my problem. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it, it's a lot of the conflict, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's not, I mean, no system that's not based in scriptures, I mean, it will all prove irrational. It, it will always be the case. I, I, I hope if you've come with me thus far, you're just saying, yeah, that's our world. That's, that pretty much describes a world that we see outside of the life of the church. Uh, what we're going to do now is transition to um, three macro concepts that form the backdrop of, modern, of the modern view of self. So we're looking at three different concepts. And first of all are three historic cultures. Uh, Truman draws here primarily from the well of sociologist Philip Reef. Reef perceived that the psychologized self coupled with the sexual revolution was a poisonous cocktail for Western civilization. And in exposing this danger, Reef described three distinct cultures or worlds of orientation. I don't have any sense that Reef is a believer, but he said putting the psychologized self with the sexual revolution is going to destroy the West. He was quite adamant about it. Um, so culture one, we would describe this way. So we're talking historically. This is going way back to a long time back. A society's moral codes are based on pagan mythology. That is, stories about the gods give shape to the moral order. We think here of Greece and Rome. And we've talked often about the, the wickedness of these myths because they're really just... Uh, placing upon um, figment of the imagination these gods and just, just making them do what we would like to do if we had power, that type of thing. But from those myths, from those stories, people knew how to live. There was a divine realm, and that realm instructed you in how to live your life morally and, how, and the laws that would rule society. In time with particularly the growth of Christianity, but also Islam, a second culture displaced that first culture, and we're talking primarily in the West. 
But a society's moral codes are based on religious faith in holy books that reveal the will of the divine realm. Judaism, Christianity, Islam all have a book of revelation that comes from the divine realm, from one God, in fact, in these three uh, instances, that is, that is communicated to us. Now, we could go to the East and find other expressions of this, but this was, this was the second ma- macro culture over many, many generations. The third culture, there is, a sa- there is no sacred realm. Morality is rooted in the perceptions and the interests of the self. So morality rooted in the perceptions and passions of the individual is in contrast to these first two cultures. Now nobody's asking to go back to culture one, uh, pretty much anywhere on earth. There are some places where this still persists, particularly if we could kind of broad brush it and say animism is in that realm. But the second culture is very clearly the culture that we would hold as a church and that has held sway for a very long time, but no more. Culture three is now in the ascendancy. By way of defense, culture three, this third no sacred realm culture, says that culture two, those societies restrict personal freedom in arbitrary, unnecessary, and harmful ways. In culture two societies, the few dictate oppressive moral norms upon the many, and therefore we should, we should shove this aside. It's not helpful, it's not good. It, it, it just allows a few people to exercise their power and it harms the common person. A second piece of culture three is what Reef calls death works. These are tools that facilitate an all-out assault upon something vital to the established culture. Death works are designed to tear down the support beams of culture number two, that is, our culture uh, as a church. So many Culture three advocates see their mission as destroying the remaining symbols of Culture two, while admitting they have no idea what kind of world they hope to create. Some of them will say, we want this world in its place, but there are actually voices out there saying, we have no idea. All we know is that that one's bad. So bring down the beams, crash the house, whatever it takes. This is in part why Minneapolis was burning a couple years ago. It was not burning simply to get attention for a political agenda. It was burning because there are people out there now who are saying, bring it all down. This was an excuse to bring it down. Obviously, that's not possible by any particular group at this point in time, but that's, that's what the thinking that's behind it. That was a death work. What's the connection between racial justice and burning down buildings? You can squint at it any way you want, and when you put it together rationally, there's no connection there. Burning down a building is not going to help racial justice. It, it, and the, again, the excuse was, well, we're getting attention. But many would say, we don't have any point. We don't care to make a point. What we care to do is destroy this culture so that it can be built from the ashes into something better. We don't even know what that is. Many will admit. 
Another death work by way of illustration is pornography. If you perceive pornography as sensual violation of God's laws regarding sex, you're right, but you're not right enough. Pornography is not only directed toward the satisfaction of a biological urge, it has more destructive intent. The Creator designed sex for pleasure and for procreation within the relational bond of a heterosexual marriage. Pornography severs the linkage between sex and procreation. It severs the linkage between sex and covenantal devotion to one's spouse. By presenting sex as all about personal pleasure and nothing more, pornography lures one into sexual sin. Yes. But it is also calibrated to destroy the family. Pornography is a wrecking ball on two gifts from God. Marital prosperity and offspring. It's a death work. And... One reason why we want to address that at our next men's breakfast and have a guest speaker in to, to deal with this. Uh, there is a, there's, there's an assault that we need to understand as an assault. It is going to be met with failure and with difficulty and challenge, but it needs to become a public conversation as we push back against this death work. It's much more than just sensual. It is a destruction to family and to offspring. Those are just illustrations. There are obviously many more. But it should be clear to us that Eden Baptist Church is a culture two outpost in a society that is transitioning into a full-blown culture three environment. That we need to see. That was not the case when I was a child in church. It just wasn't the world that I lived in as a boy. But it's the world we live in now. There is a conflict on this level between our cultural environment as a church and the culture in which, to which we minister. This means that we need each other, that we need to exhort each other, that we need to pray for one another, and we need to be awake. It also means that the biblical message sounded from this church will sound increasingly strange to people who are indoctrinated in the convictions of, of a culture three world. That the only reason that you speak with authority about moral right and wrong is that you desire to control people and to harm individuals, to get in the way of the happiness of self. We cannot have teachers without backbone. We cannot take the word of God and preach it faithfully unless we're willing to resist this direction. And we'll need to be with increasing vigor, it would seem, in the days ahead. All right, uh, concept one, three historic cultures. Let me move to the second concept. We'll go a little faster, and this is two ways of viewing the world. Layered over this historical cultural shift, we now layer over top of that, uh, two ways of viewing the world in which we live. The first way is called mimesis. This is from a Greek word. It regards the world as having a given order and a given meaning and thus sees human beings as required to discover that meaning and conform themselves to it. Uh, mimesis, that's really helpful, isn't it? <laughs> a great word. So picture it this way. 
You're sitting in a room. Somebody comes to you and hands you just a plop down on the table in front of you a book. Boom. This book contains the rules of a sport you've never heard of and never seen. Figure it out. You start paging through the book. That's mimesis. The book's been provided. The rules are there. I need to figure out the meaning and see how it works and see what this sport would be like and how it's meant to be played. It may not be the perfect illustration, but it works. The world is designed with a given order, meaning, and purpose. Our task then is to discern that meaning and calibrate our lives to nature, nature's purpose. Now, this way of viewing the world was a lot easier in an agrarian culture going back a long ways in history. The food on the farmer's table directly resulted, was a direct result from planting at the right time, receiving rain from the heavens, receiving that precipitation in ideal quantities. It was really easy to look to the heavens and say, I'm a receiver. God, we need you to allow our crops to grow. It was easier to perceive then life as dependent on the way the world was made and on forces that were above and beyond us. But there's a second way of viewing the world, and that's called poiesis. Again, the Greek word. It sees the world as so much raw material out of which meaning and purpose can be created by the individual. So, the book plopped on the table... The picture here is the person walks into the room where you're seated at the table and takes a big hunk of clay and throws it on the table and says, have fun. Figure it out. What do you want to make out of it? Now, uh, just theoretically on its own, one's not necessarily better than the other, but what is the world to you? How do you view the world? Is the world something that there's order and there is purpose, there's meaning that we need to discover and bring our lives in line with it? Or is the world mainly a matter of raw materials by which I make whatever I want? Well, I think it'd be pretty clear to everyone in this assembly where we stand as a church. There is a revealed Word of God. And it is our task to understand its meaning and apply it to life. There's a given purpose that we find from God. But we're, we work with people. You have people in your family, you have people in the neighborhood who are poetic in their orientation. They, they think the whole point is to make out of life whatever they want to make out of it. I can turn this clay into anything I want. Now, this is easier when we think of an agrarian world of today. I don't look to the heavens and say, God, please send rain. We're going to die if you don't. We have irrigation systems. We have motorized pumps. We have fertilizers. We have pesticides that help father, fathers, farmers, maybe father farmers too, but it, it, they assert their will over nature. So I mean, it's a lazy farmer that doesn't apply some means to do better with what he's producing. Transportation, we have automobiles, airplanes, information technologies increasingly overcome the limitations of time and space. We can get anywhere we want pretty fast. Body industry, drugs and diets and exercise machines and routines and cosmetic and gender reassignment surgeries and hormone treatments. We can make of ourselves what we want. 
and it don't, I, I don't want to get too far off into this, but what is happening in our society is people philosophically driven this way in their adulthood, essentially handing knives to children and saying, make of your body whatever you want. We're behind you. We support you. We can cut you up and dice you up and turn you into anything you want to be. It's a poetic view of life. I don't want to in any way minimize the wickedness of this, the child abuse of it. I don't want to minimize that. But we need to understand such people are coming from this second perspective. And they're saying that we want to support you becoming all that you can be. Whatever that is. And so you, you will find some individuals who are genuinely compassionate, who are hand and knives to children. It's twisted and wrong and as wicked as wicked can be. It is child abuse, and yet we have people who think they're being helpful. This helps us see why transgenderism has become such a robust political conviction on the part of some. Thinking from the mimesis side of things, conservatives, by conservative, we're not talking just a political group, but we're saying they are conserving what has been given by nature. Conservatives prioritize conformity to a higher natural order that mankind receives. So, for instance, one's gender at birth is a biologically determined gift, and it is everyone's best interest to accept that gift in keeping with the laws of nature. A guy wrote an article in the newspaper making that very point. He said, let's go to the dictionary, let's look up the definition of male and female, and right there it is. Then the liberal wrote the article in response and saying, yes, but there's a difference between biology and gender. There's the liberals tend to dismiss the laws of nature and to fight for the freedom of individuals to mold themselves into whatever makes them feel most happy and fulfilled. <clears throat> the anger that both sides unleash against one another seldom reflects an appreciation for why the other side lands where it does. And as a conservative church, let me encourage all of us to not merely rage against liberals. We should not be saying, how can anybody be so idiotic? There is a reason why they land where they land. We need to understand what that is, or we will simply contribute to the fog, and we will prove nearly incapable of evangelism of such people. If we want to limit ourselves to evangelism, to conservative Lutherans and Catholics, we can just ignore this. But if we want to reach all people with the gospel, we're going to have to be able to interact with and receive on some level those who are thinking in this area of poiesis. To see the world as raw material from which I'm, I'm able to make anything out of it that I wish. One last major concept here is the role of institutions. I'm going to fly through this, but hang with me. These first two macro concepts, three cultures, 
two ways of viewing the world, are fleshed out and curated in societal institutions. If you're following with me, in that historic culture, we're now in a culture three. We're in a culture that said there's no sacred realm. We make out of things whatever we want to make out of them. And it is connected to viewing the world as so much clay material we make stuff out of. So putting those two together with this third concept, we have now the role of institutions. Institutions established, defend, develop, and teach the behaviors deemed most important to society. So we're talking governments, education systems, media, religion, commerce. Ancient institutions were largely political in orientation with the individual committed to the assembled community. What the community thought, how the community fared, was everything. As we move through history, medieval institutions were religious in orientation with the individual committed to the church. What the church said was all important. That's where everything was lodged, was what the church said. Whether Roman Catholic... Eastern Orthodox, uh, and the like. There were independents, there were um, uh, other groups that didn't fall within those strictures, but that was a lot of what Western society was about. And then after the Reformation, institutions shifted more toward an emphasis on economics, with the individual committed to trade unions or cooperative uh, educational institutions oriented to helping people make a living. And so the shift was away from religion. But today, institutions are oriented to the promotion of psychologized man with the primary emphasis falling on the promotion of self-identity and self-expression. I'm talking about in the West. Concept one, concept two, to concept three, we find this great emergence of force. Competing institutions then in our day, and conservatively institutions, one's identity is largely learned and thus primarily received. This is who you are, the institution teaches. You will truly prosper as you learn to conform to this reality and to these established purchase purposes which exist for society's good and for your own. I, I think... My lifetime, I think public schools at least were pretty close to that. And again, I, I grew up in the East Coast, which was way ahead of here. When I moved here, I was like, whoa, I've taken a step back in time. Uh, it's a little overstated, but it, but it felt that way to me when I, when I moved here. Uh, but even that, with that difference, there was sort of a sense of here's what a good citizen is and does. And you need to learn this and you need to conform to it. The epitome of this orientation in our day, a day passing, is the Bible college. The emphasis was less on how to make a living and more on how to live. Here's the received Word of God that is given to us. How do we conform our lives to that truth? And uh, with training practically of how to live as a Christian in the world. By the epitome of that type of orientation. But liberal-leaning institutions are more structured to question tradition, to question tradition, to uh, not conserve it. 
and to prioritize the individual's self-exploration, self-expression, and self-determination. In the liberal mindset, any time freedom of self-determination is impinged by appeal to a higher order, whoever makes that claim is no good. Such a person must be driven by a lust for power, if not hate. Such a person conspires only to render the individual inauthentic. And to deny the expressive freedom of one's authentic self is the unpardonable sin now in our culture. The teaching and preaching ministry of this church commits that unpardonable sin with regularity. As an institution, public schools in America are predominantly now liberal in philosophy. That is, their self-concept is less about shaping students and more about creating safe spaces for individual self-expression. This is Truman's point. He says as well, this is why public schools have become, and here I quote, not places to form or to transform, but rather places where students can perform. There's a, there's a competing uh, process, competitive process here with, with institutions. Let's think of those institutions from either side in the realm of the sacred order. The traditional culture, ethical assertions are rooted in transcendent sacred order that people must learn and obey. Health, the health of society is realized then in, the, in conformity of individuals to the demands of that higher order and the beauty and integrity of that order. So in the number one, let's go back to the New Testament. In number one, it was the instruction of the church in the doctrinal truths of Scripture revealed by God. How well were Christians learning the doctrines of Scripture? Number two, however, is the beauty and integrity of that order. And this is where the pagan Roman Empire ran into major trouble. Romans obeyed the rules. They were big rule keepers. Whatever the myth said, whatever the gods wanted, whatever the institution of the empire wanted, that's what we do. But the problem with pagan Rome up against Christianity was that it looked so ugly. There was such a beauty to the Christian faith on so many levels, pagan Rome fell apart. Long before the empire, and it, well, long in our terms, not long in historical terms, but long before the empire uh, crumbled, Christianity had taken over. It was too beautiful to resist. The gods looked increasingly cheap in contrast to the ethical beauty of Christianity. And that, of course, connected to uh, the faith of Israel, as we read in Isaiah 44 today. In non-traditional cultures, the resistance to moral imperatives from um, there is a resistance to moral imperatives from any sacred realm whatsoever. They question the integrity of any authority figure who promotes a sacred realm, often dismissing that person as seeking to control society by selfish reasons. But then, but how then does a society know what to promote? 
If there's no sacred realm to inform and all depends on the inner desires of the individual, well, the answer is from this non-traditional culture perspective, we'll figure it out. Society will intuitively know what's best for its citizens. We will just figure it out. And I know it's hard not to be cynical there, isn't it? You go, you're not, how's that working for you? You know, it's not working out. But that's how they would look at it. This approach is decidedly then political. Why? It's political because it's primarily lawmakers who inform the institutions what they should or even may believe, teach, and promote for the flourishing of society. These approved beliefs are then rooted in the fashionable philosophies of the day and in the will of its promoters who are quite happy to shift society's ethical goalposts all the time, constantly changing. And sadly, this is not child's play. As we witness in Truman's sobering observation, we're in that non-traditional culture. There's nothing we can do to reverse that. But he says, no culture or society that has had to justify itself by itself has ever maintained itself for any length of time. Such always involves cultural entropy, a degeneration of the culture, because, of course, there really is nothing worth communicating from one generation to the next. We, as a culture, are now passing on nothing. Every generation left to figure it out on their own. It's sad. This is horrifically sad. But I think of the joy that we have as a church to be countercultural there. Say that there is a generation growing up among us that we love, and we're passing down the truth delivered once for all to the saints to the next generation. We have in this small subculture such a unique opportunity in this world. And I do think that there has to be something that looks beautiful in that to an unbeliever who's so rooted in this world where nothing at all is passed on. It's all just suggestion. It's just all what mom and dad did. No one speaks with authority anymore. What beauty to see a generation passing on to a younger generation this is solid. I may not have lived it out as I should. I don't pass it on to you saying this is mine and I've molded it to be what worked for me. I'm passing this on to you to say this is from the one true and living God. What privileges are ours? Well, these macro concepts established uh, the, the triumph of the self has paved the way to this I am a woman trapped in a man's body type of thinking. And in uh, next week, Lord willing, as we have opportunity, we want to talk through how this imagination has come to pervade the fantasy that is now uh, uh, running the, the world around us and to look at that from a historical standpoint. Who said what? that we bought, that then led into where we are today. Our time is, is gone. I'll, uh, I'll stick around if uh, I can answer anything. I uh, hope to do so. But I, I hope we can just see kind of where these larger concepts have brought us to this day, and then we'll, 
we'll, uh, Lord willing, finish things up next week. And my intention is uh, I do not have as much material, uh, and I want to keep it there so that we can um, do a little Q&A after next Lord's Day evening. Let's stand together, and let's be dismissed in prayer. We're thankful, Lord, for this day. We're thankful for the proclamation of the word today that we've heard. We thank you that we have received a revelation from you, from your mind to us of counsel and goodness, that we receive something far bigger than what we can come up with in our own brain and in our own soul and passions. We praise you that we serve a God who is creator, sustainer, reigning king of the universe, the one who will come again and who will transform us into your likeness. God, we praise you that you are not like the idols of the pagan world who cannot breathe or see or hear or help. We, Lord, grieve for a nation where people are killing under the law, in line with the law, where people are cutting themselves apart and taking medications that are at absolute odds with everything that you've made, and then to think of what people are picking up as they pick up the pieces of shattered lives. Lord, may we not point a finger of accusation, mock, and walk away. But I pray that we would find out how people have gotten so caught up so incapable of getting down from the tree that they've climbed or the cave into which they've become lost. And I pray that we take the light of the gospel there. Open opportunities for us this week to do so and pour out your blessing and your grace on this congregation, we pray. And may we shine as light for Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you.